Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about how to handle medical emergencies. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. Good afternoon, Steve. Hello there, Ron. So we're going to be getting into the realm of medical emergencies today, which hopefully most people won't experience. But let's be perfectly honest, it's going to happen to most people, either for them or for somebody that they know. So it's always good to be prepared. You don't have to be a Boy Scout for this, but it wouldn't be bad to have that kind of a mindset. So let's talk about first, what are the most common medical emergencies that people come across that aren't doctors? Well, according to the American College of Emergency Physicians, the following are warning signs of a medical emergency. So that would include bleeding that will not stop, breathing problems uh, such as difficulty breathing or shortness of breath, a change in mental status uh, such as unusual behavior, confusion, or difficulty arousing, chest pain, choking, coughing up or vomiting blood, fainting or loss of consciousness, a feeling of committing suicide or murder, head or spine injuries, uh, severe or persistent vomiting, uh, a sudden injury due to a motor vehicle accident, burns or smoke inhalation, near drowning, deep or large wound or other injuries, a sudden severe pain anywhere in the body, sudden dizziness, weakness, or change in vision, uh, swallowing a poisonous substance, and severe abdominal pain or pressure. Okay. So now if somebody is around somebody who's experiencing any of these, what's the first thing they should do, if at all possible, for any of these things? Well, in general, you should stay calm and assess the situation no matter what the emergency is. And definitely call 911 if the person's condition is life-threatening, such as a heart attack or you know, a severe allergic reaction, such as anaphylactic shock. Also, if moving a person who is injured could cause further injury, such as someone involved in a car accident or an athlete with a bad neck trauma that requires a spine board and bracing. Uh, in addition, if the individual's condition could become life-threatening on the way to the hospital and you know the skills or equipment of paramedics is needed. And if there's definite urgency to get someone to the hospital, but traffic conditions or distance might cause a delay in getting them to the hospital in a timely fashion. Also, you know, if the person has stopped breathing or their heart has stopped, then you can perform CPR if you're trained and certified. And ideally, it's best to be prepared ahead of time for the various medical emergencies. 
And here's some good pointers from the American College of Emergency Physicians. Determine the location and quickest route to the nearest emergency department before an emergency happens. Keep emergency phone numbers posted in your home where you can easily access them. Uh, also, enter the numbers into your cell phone. Everyone in your household, including children, should know when and how to call these numbers. And, you know, these numbers include the fire department, police department, poison control center, ambulance center, your doctor's phone numbers, uh, contact numbers of neighbors or nearby friends or relatives, and work phone numbers. And also know at which hospital or hospitals your doctor practices and if practical, you know, go there in an emergency. Uh, you should also wear a medical identification tag if you have a chronic condition or look for one on a person who has any of the symptoms mentioned. And get a personal emergency response system if you're an older adult, especially if you live alone. Yeah, and the other thing people should do is especially, I don't know about Android phones, but on iPhones, there is, I think it's the health app where you can put information in, like, especially if you have allergies to certain medications that would be very dangerous for you to get. And I believe the way that it works is even if your phone is locked, the emergency personnel can access it on your lock screen to make sure they're not going to give you something that's going to cause you to go into anaphylactic shock or die. Good point. So next, uh, so well, let's take one of them. Let's start with bleeding. What steps can somebody take to help somebody who's bleeding and what steps should they avoid doing so as not to cause other problems if they come across somebody who is losing a lot of blood? Okay. Well, you know, I actually went over this scenario in podcast episode number 43 on clotting and bleeding. So I'm going to go and review that and add a little bit more to it. Okay. Uh, if you recall, I talked about three things that you can do to prevent any more blood loss when severe bleeding occurs. Again, before doing anything, dial 911 for help. In the meantime, you can apply direct heavy pressure to the wound using a large dressing like a bandage or as a last resort, your bare hand if you have nothing else readily available. If an extremity is involved, elevate it. And if you have any gauze, then you can pack the wound with layers of gauze to help soak the blood and then apply firm pressure with a large bandage over the top. As a supplement uh, to direct pressure and wound packing, you can push on pressure points when bleeding occurs in the extremities. So the main origin artery that feeds the lower extremity is in the groin and is called the femoral artery. Uh, the main artery that feeds the upper extremity is at the inside center of the upper arm and is called the brachial artery. So instead of using a tourniquet, uh, you apply pressure to the pressure points, which is like crimping off a garden hose, which in this case can help stop blood flow when used along with the previously mentioned pressure dressings. And also, if you're unable to reach 911 for help and you don't know how or where to administer pressure point therapy, then as a last-ditch resort, you can apply a tourniquet uh, as high on the limb as possible and tighten it hard enough to stop the blood flow no matter how much pain that it produces. It's also really important to write down the time that you applied the tourniquet and then hopefully get immediate medical care. And always remember to never remove a tourniquet before help arrives. And here's some important do's and don'ts for certain scenarios with bleeding. Uh, if a person has a real bad head wound that's bleeding profusely, make sure you keep direct pressure on the wound with a clean cloth and don't remove pressure to look at the wound or check bleeding. 
Uh, obviously, if you soak the towel, then you know quickly replace it with a new clean one while always keeping pressure on the wound. Does it say why that's important or why you don't want to let the pressure? Just just because of the amount of blood loss and the fact the person can pass out. And I mean, I had that scenario happen with a friend of mine when we were changing a ladder in our garage. And uh, there was another person up there holding this wooden ladder that had a, a sharp edge and he dropped and it landed right on the forehead of my friend. Mm. I immediately ran inside and grabbed a beach towel. He soaked that thing in about two minutes. Wow. And so, yeah, I rushed him to the hospital and uh, we were in the ER and we kept replacing bandages. Um, you know, they were taking people in front of them, him with like flu symptoms. And I said, you know, this guy's going to bleed to death. Get him in the, you know, the, the, the room. I'm a doctor. And they, they listened to me, thank goodness, and got him in there. He needed, I think it was 37 stitches. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. So another scenario is if, you know, if someone has an abdominal injury from, let's say, a gunshot or knife injury, then what you want to do is cover it up with a clean dressing such as gauze or clothing, but don't use your bare hands because of the potential risk of infection especially in that area of the body. And if there's a likely fracture at the site of bleeding, then don't move the individual until emergency help arrives, especially if it's a skull fracture, rib fracture, neck fracture, or a limb fracture, unless you're able to brace and secure the arm or leg with cushions on either side of the break. Okay. So that was bleeding. So now let's go on to the next one we're going to talk about, which is choking. What should you and what shouldn't you do if you have a situation where somebody is choking on something? I mean, we all see that in the movies and, you know, anyway, everybody knows what's happening in the movies, but is that the realistic thing that you should do or is there anything about that you need to watch out for? Good question. Uh, really, the first thing that you need to do is to make sure the person is actually choking. So the universal sign for choking is hands clutched to the throat. Okay. And if the person isn't doing this, then look for other indicators that, you know, they, they could also be choking and they're not doing that universal sign. So look for things like inability to talk, difficulty breathing or noisy breathing, squeaky sounds when they're trying to breathe, uh, cough, which may either be weak or forceful. Skin, lips, and nails turning blue or dusky. A skin that's flushed uh, then turns pale or bluish in color. And even loss of consciousness. So if an individual is able to cough forcefully, the person should just keep coughing and just encourage them to continue coughing to clear the blockage. If the object is in their mouth, then ask them to try to spit it out. And definitely don't put your fingers in their mouth to try to help them because they can bite you accidentally. Mm, good point. Yeah. If the person is choking and can't talk or cry or laugh forcefully, the American Red Cross recommends a five and five approach to delivering first aid. So first you give five back blows by standing to the side and just behind a choking adult or, you know, for a child, you just kneel down behind them. You then place one arm across the person's chest for support and then bend the person over at the waist so that the upper body is parallel to the ground. Then you deliver five separate back blows between the person's shoulder blades with the heel of your hand. And this is followed by five abdominal thrusts, which is essentially the Heimlich maneuver. Then you know, alternate between five blows to the back and five thrusts in the front until the blockage is dislodged. 
Now, the American Heart Association, who I got my training through, only recommends doing abdominal thrusts and not back blows. So the way, the way that you do abdominal thrusts, again, you know, the Heimlich maneuver, is you stand behind the person and place one foot slightly in front of the other for balance. Then you wrap your arms around the waist and tighten the person or, and tip the person forward slightly. If it's a child, then you just kneel down behind the child again. After that, you make a fist with one hand positioned just above the person's navel, but definitely below the rib cage, and grasp the fist with the other hand and press hard into the abdomen with a quick upward thrust, as if you're trying to lift the person up. And then you just perform between six to 10 of these abdominal thrusts until the blockage is dislodged. I've seen you do this. You did this successfully with a friend of ours. Did I? I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah. Now, here's interesting. If you're actually choking, then you can actually perform the Heimlich maneuver on yourself. And you do that by placing a fist slightly above your navel, grasp your fist with the other hand, and bend over a hard surface such as a countertop or a chair. And then you just shove your fist inward and upward. And that should do the job. Cool. Yeah. Now, there are modifications to clearing the airway of a choking individual who's pregnant, unconscious, or is an infant under the age of one. And, you know, we can leave a link to the article that goes over them. It's a Mayo Clinic article titled Choking First Aid. So we'll definitely put that in the notes. Yeah. All right. And I think probably one of the important things to do is to have a proper assessment of the situation because if somebody's eating food and then they start choking, chances of it being something lodged is very high. But you also have a situation where somebody's throat could be closing up because of an allergic reaction to something, in which case that isn't going to do any good and you're going to have to probably do the whole sticking the pen in the bottom of their throat to open the airway up so that they can breathe. So that would be another different situation, which we're not necessarily going over in this podcast. But I believe if you take a CPR class, do they go over that situation there? Usually, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's just one thing to keep in mind is taking a look at what the situation actually is as far as whether a Heimlich maneuver would be appropriate and would get the situation taken care of. Now, if you're around somebody who's feeling dizzy or faint, what, you sh what should you do to help them out? Well, you know, it definitely helps to know what could be causing this. So common causes of uh, weakness, dizziness, and or feeling faint include headaches, medication side effects, alcohol, an infection with a fever such as a cold or a flu, an inner ear issue, which could also be causing vertigo, low blood sugar, low blood pressure, and even dehydration. So the first thing you should do is to get the person to lie down for at least a minute or two with their legs raised. But if they can't do this, at least have them sit with their head lowered between their knees. And after they start feeling a little better, you know, you can have them drink some water. And if you suspect that they might be a little dehydrated, especially if they've been out in the sun or sweating from exercising, then add some electrolytes to it to replenish those too. And if they're up to it, it would also be a good idea to get them to eat something, especially if you suspect that their blood sugar might be low. Uh, definitely have them avoid coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, and drugs during this time. 
It also wouldn't be a bad idea to check their vitals, including their temperature, blood pressure, and pulse. Uh, when getting up, make sure they move slowly and carefully, avoiding any movements, positions, or activities that make them lightheaded or dizzy or have made them lightheaded or dizzy in the past. And have them focused on taking deep breaths from the abdomen instead of the chest to ensure more oxygen goes to all parts of the body, including the head. I would also heavily emphasize uh, telling them to get plenty of rest after this. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to keep an eye on this individual for at least the short term to make sure that they've made it through this episode, which hopefully is temporary. Absolutely. Now, a, a more serious or potentially more serious situation that you could come across that probably isn't that uncommon is if somebody's having chest pains. Now, if somebody's having chest pains, what do you do? I mean, first of all, the problem with chest pain is that there are many causes of it and 26 to be exact. Yeah. And then some of it is depending on whether it's the right side of the chest or the left side of the chest. That's true. Yeah. And of course, the first thing that many of us think of when it comes to chest pain is a heart attack. Mm -hmm. But as much as 25% of the population has non-heart related chest pain conditions caused by problems with the lungs, esophagus, stomach, muscles, ribs, the nerves, and even from anxiety and panic attacks. So it's really important to determine if it's a serious medical issue like a heart attack or angina or you know something much less serious such as a muscle strain, uh, GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease, or a hiatal hernia. I'm not going to go through all the 26 of, you know, various causes of chest pain, but I can leave a link to an excellent article from webmd.com called what's causing my chest pain mm -hmm. and it goes over all of them and you know this article emphasizes that you should call 911 if an individual has chest pain along with any of the following symptoms which are a sudden feeling of pressure squeezing tightness or crushing under your breastbone so that's probably a heart attack mm -hmm. chest pain that spreads to your jaw left arm or back Sudden sharp chest pain with shortness of breath, especially after a long period of inactivity. Nausea, dizziness, rapid heart rate or rapid breathing, confusion, ashen color or excessive sweating. And also very low blood pressure or very low heart rate. So it's a good idea to check their vitals. Yep. Uh, the article also points out that you should contact your doctor if you have chest pain along with fever, chills, or coughing up yellow-green mucus. So that's probably a you know, bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. Problems swallowing. Or severe chest pain that does not go away. Okay. So that's important to understand. I remember when I was in practice, there was this lady that owned a hairdressing salon in the same strip mall that I was in. And, and she was very concerned about something she finally told me about one day and she was having pain in the chest and she thought maybe she was having heart problems and, and she told me and showed me where the pain was and it was in the right side of her chest and I had to explain to her well your heart is in the left side of your chest turned out to be a rib that was out of position that was causing pain and I adjusted her and the pain went away and she was very relieved because even though I told her her heart was on the left side she was still concerned that maybe that that's what it was, or maybe even lung cancer. So it's good to, like you said, it's good to figure out what might be causing that pain to figure out what to do about it. Yeah, now, good job, Dr. Ned. 
Oh, yes. Another <laughs> one of those good ones. Yep. Um, now, if somebody's having a seizure, and I had this happen with a patient, um, he was standing talking to me and then just went into a full grand mal seizure. What should you do to respond to that? Well, I mean, first of all, when it comes to seizures, it's important to know that some seizures are more dangerous than others, especially what you just mentioned, a grand mal seizure, which can actually be deadly. Uh, there isn't a whole lot that you really can do during a seizure to stop it, but you can definitely help protect the individual and provide assistance. Fortunately, 19 out of 20 seizures stop by themselves within two to three minutes, but there can be a prolonged period of confusion afterwards. Uh, when seizures last longer than five minutes, a 911 call for an ambulance should be placed. And just like what I said for all other emergencies, you need to stay calm. And I've got a list here of do's and don'ts for seizures. Good. So under the do column, do call for emergency assistance when needed. Do safely cushion the person's head with a pillow. Uh, do protect the person from any nearby objects because they can awfully, you know, often be flailing around. I had one patient that kicked a hole in my drywall. Mm. Do time the length of the seizure. And do stay with the person until they recover. So under, on the don't column, don't put anything in the person's mouth since they could cause, you know, that could cause injury. See, that's interesting because I remember hearing years ago that you want to put something in their mouth so that they don't bite their tongue. No. So that's, that's changed. Not recommended now. Yep. Okay. Uh, don't, yeah, don't try to move the person and don't try to restrain the person. Okay. Well, yeah, it was interesting because it was standing talking to this guy and then he he's talking to me and then just kind of goes into a, like he's making kind of weird sounds and then he starts shaking and then he just goes into the full seizure he's on the ground shaking and i'm thinking about the whole thing about you stick their wallet in their mouth so they don't bite their tongue well i didn't do that and i called out to my receptionist and it just it stopped after a couple of minutes but it's scary to go yeah. through something like that yeah. And it turns out that he had lit, he had worked a late shift and he was supposed to be taking medication because he had a history of seizures and he hadn't and had, hadn't had anything to eat and, you know, had worked through the night. And it was all sorts of things that would aggravate the situation that he wasn't supposed to be doing. But it didn't make me feel that much better anyway. But it was it was. You know, I did def definitely got to go through one of those as, as you did, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. All right. So now let's move on to another situation, which can be very serious, and it has to do with a stroke. What are the signs of somebody that's having a stroke? And what should you do if you're around somebody who's displaying one or more of those signs? All right. Well, there's five warning signs of a stroke. Uh, first one is sudden numbness or weakness of the face, arm, or leg, especially on one side of the body. Uh, secondly is sudden confusion, trouble speaking, or understanding speech. Number three is sudden trouble seeing in one or both eyes. Uh, four is sudden trouble walking, dizziness, loss of balance, or coordination. And finally, sudden severe headache with no known cause. Now, there's also a simple mnemonic to help you remember the warning signs of a stroke. It's F-A-S-T, FAST, which helps you think fast and get timely treatment. So F stands for face drooping. Mm -hmm. A is arm weakness. Mm -hmm. 
S is speech difficulty. And T stands for time to call 911. Yeah. <laughs> so there's also three do do's and don'ts if someone is having a stroke. And these are really good too. Okay. So the, under the three do's column, it's the first one is call 911 immediately. Two, note the time you first see symptoms. And this is very, very important because the, in that way, the emergency staff can make a better informed decision about treatment options. So, for example, if the individual has had a stroke caused by a blood clot, there's a clot-busting medication called TPA, or tissue plasminogen activator, which can be given to someone having a stroke, uh, potentially reversing or stopping symptoms from developing. But it has to be given within four and a half hours of the start of symptoms. So that's really important that you get the time when it starts. The, the third one is perform CPR if necessary. Now, most people who have strokes don't need CPR, but sometimes they may go unconscious. And if their pulse and breathing is stopped after checking them, then, you know, you need to start CPR immediately if you know it or ask the 911 dispatcher to walk you through how to perform it. Right. Now, as far as don'ts are concerned, do not let that person go to sleep or talk you out of calling 911. Again, we learned earlier that time is of the essence, so get them to the ER as soon as possible. Right. Uh, do not give them medication, food, or drinks. This is a common sense issue since there's two types of strokes. There's the hemorrhagic stroke, which is caused by a broken blood vessel, and the other is an ischemic stroke, which is caused by a blood clot. Now, even though 80% of strokes are ischemic strokes, which would be okay to give that person aspirin, the other 20% are due to a ruptured blood vessel in the head, and you definitely don't want to give that individual an aspirin. Right, because that thins the blood and it would cause it to bleed further. Exactly. So to be safe and certain, don't give anyone who has had a stroke any medication until they've been diagnosed properly at the hospital. Also, you shouldn't give them food or drinks because the ambulance, you know, before the ambulance comes, because sometimes a stroke affects their ability to swallow. Right. And do not drive yourself or someone else to the emergency room for obvious reasons, such as the potential need for CPR or other types of medical intervention. Yeah. Call Uber. Yep. Could you imagine that your Uber driver is like, I'm, I'm having a stroke. Can you come and get me to the hospital? Jeez. Okay. Now, if you have somebody that you're around and their heart stops beating, what do you do then? Well, you know, first of all, this means that the person has gone into sudden cardiac arrest and the heart now is not pumping any oxygen-rich blood to the brain and other organs, including the heart muscle, which can lead to body death in a matter of minutes if it's not treated right away. So time is of the essence here. Uh, most cardiac arrests happen outside of the hospital, either at home or in public places. So if this occurs, then immediately call 911 and start CPR if you know it, or have the 911 operator guide again, you know, guide you until the paramedics arrive. In my opinion, CPR should be taught to everyone, starting with young children in school, because it's not that difficult to do, and it can potentially save many thousands of lives every year. Mm -hmm. Now, AEDs, also known as automated external defibrillators, are also lifesavers and are also not that hard to use. And although the laws are different in each state, many public buildings are either required or encouraged to have them available. 
And you'll definitely find them in public schools as well as airports and, of course, hospitals. Right. Exactly. And I had to do CPR recently, and it had been a while since I'd taken a CPR class. And I remember you used to have, you'd, you'd press on the chest so many times, and then you'd breathe into the mouth so many times. And it was interesting because we had somebody from 911 on the phone, and they just had me pumping on the chest. There was no breathing into the mouth at all. It was just keep pumping, and it was at a certain speed. And they'd have me count, I think it was one through five. And they had me counting out loud so that they could hear that I was doing it. And it was like, okay, well, I'm already doing a lot of effort just to keep this going. So talking at the same time was a little bit much, but I was able to keep it up. But it was, you know, that is something if you call 911 and you're in a situation like this, they will tell you what to do exactly. Yeah. You know, from my training from the American Heart Association, you're supposed to do uh, 25 chest thrusts and then two um, you know, mouth to mouth. And, um, hopefully you have, you know, something to put in the mouth, uh, to protect you from infection and so forth. I usually have, have one with me. I have one in my car. I have what I have a, you know, I have one at the office, but as far as the, the rate that you do it, it's a hundred beats per minute. Mm -hmm. And so there's two songs that qualify for that. Yeah. Okay. One is I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Okay. And the other is Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Okay. Yeah, two of my all-time favorite songs. That's great. Yeah, so like I said, they did not have me doing any breathing into the mouth. That was just the chest aspect of thing. All right, now if you find somebody's ingested poison or they might have taken a drug overdose, what are the first steps that you should be taking? Well, you can call 1-800-222-1222 to connect directly to your state poison center. Mm. Uh, you can also go to poison.org, which will give you some really good pointers as well as online help. And it also includes a link to the phone number that I just gave. Okay. According to the United States Health Resources and Services Administration, more than 70% of people who call a poison center instead of calling 911 get the help they need over the telephone without having to go to a hospital or a doctor. And even healthcare professionals who are seeking treatment advice for their patients consult poison center experts. And these account for about 16% of all calls. And these specially trained poison experts include nurses, pharmacists, and doctors. Wow. Yeah. Now, a natural remedy to always have on hand in case of a drug overdose, poisoning, including food poisoning, and insect bites is activated charcoal. And that absorbs toxins quickly and can prevent a trip to the doctor or the hospital too. Yeah, the key with that is whether the person can take anything in. That's true. So, you know, if an individual, for example, is nauseous, vomiting, or they can't keep anything down, then there's a suppository called Zofran, also known as Ondansetron, which works like a charm. I've seen it work on someone who drank too much and she couldn't keep down activated charcoal and this stuff worked great. Oh, great. Um, I also had a patient at my office who on her first visit was extremely nauseous and constantly vomiting into the garbage can. Hmm. And, you know, she was able to get her medical doctor to write a prescription for the suppository and fill it at the CVS that, you know, is walking distance from my office. Mm hmm and, you know, her mother got it for her and she improved rapidly so that I was able to adjust her upper neck, which also made a huge difference. Wow. 
Okay, that's great. Now, we've gone through quite a few. Are there any other medical emergency types that we should cover that we haven't covered so far yet? Well, of course, you know, there's severe allergic reactions, including anaphylactic shock. And we actually covered this in detail in podcast episode number 45. So people can go back and refer to that if they want more information on it. Okay. You know, serious or potentially serious fractures, such as open fractures, displaced fractures, pathological fractures, burst fractures, rib fractures, scaphoid bone fractures, and especially neck fractures. You can find out more about these in podcast episode 41 covering broken bones, but those are things that you don't want to take lightly either. You know, dislocations of the hip, knee, and ankle can also be considered medical emergencies and will require paramedic assistance for transport to the hospital. I, I was playing softball one time at second base, and this guy slid in, and his ankle twisted 270 degrees. Ouch. So he not only dislocated it, he fra- it was a fracture and dislocation. And you can lose a limb if you, you know, if, if he burst the blood vessel in that area, especially an artery. So they had to helicopter him to the nearest trauma center. Wow. To get that handled. Yeah. And this is a big guy. He's like, I mean, this guy was big and muscular and he just let out the, the loudest yelp I've ever heard. I would imagine. I'm so. sure I would have done the same. <laughs> um, you know, while we're on the subject of recommending podcasts for various medical emergencies, I've got a list of additional ones that I also recommend checking out if people listening haven't. Mm-hmm. So episode 33, we covered asthma, which could definitely be a potential emergency. Uh, episode 52 is on concussion. Right. And episode 87 covered cardiovascular health. Yep. Excellent. Now, is there any training that a layperson could take that would help prepare them for a medical emergency? Well, you know, if you Google, if you Google this, you'll find all kinds of online courses as well as in-person courses for people to gain knowledge and training to develop competence in handling medical emergencies, including, you know, learning how to do CPR, using an AED, and the use of emergency oxygen to help not only adults, but also children and even infants. And some of these courses are for individuals, whereas others are designed for the workplace and can be taught to an entire office. So I'm not going to recommend one particular training course because I haven't taken or researched thoroughly any of these to give my professional opinion. But if you Google training for layperson for medical emergencies or training for people for medical emergencies, You'll find quite a few sites that offer some interesting courses for non-health professionals, including some from the Red Cross. Yeah, and it wouldn't be a bad idea for parents to make sure they get some type of training because with children, there's always going to be something that's going to happen, whether it be bleeding or broken bones or allergic reactions to things. And it's best not to have to try and figure out what to do at the time that it happens. It's good to know in advance. And CPR classes is probably, like you said, something that should be a mandatory thing that everybody should take. And I would assume that there's a lot of that being done online now. You'd still have to do certain practical aspects of it. But I think that there's still a lot of it that can be done online at this point in time, correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I take it every two years, it's required for my diplomat in sports medicine, but we have to demonstrate on a dummy 
you know, the thrusting on the chest and mm-hmm. tilting the head back and all the various things that, that are needed and also Heimlich maneuver and so on and so forth. So they, they can have, we do watch videos and we do watch the theory portion of it. But as far as practical, you do have to demonstrate that you can do it too. So I'm not sure how much uh, they can really certify online. Well, it's not so much certifying. It's for getting the person to get the information that they'd need to be able to take care of this. And especially now, since the, especially in certain states where things are not being done in person that much, I would think they'd be able to cover a lot of it online. That's true. All right. Well, that's great. Excellent information and very helpful. And like I said, people should go through the information. They should also take a CPR class because you really don't want to be caught in one of these situations and be trying to figure out what to do. Now, next week, we're going to be having a guest on because you have previously scheduled engagements. And so we're going to have Dr. Stephen Lund, who works in your office. Now, he is no longer practicing as a physician. He is doing work as a, a massage therapist. And we're going to be talking about massage therapy because a lot of people like to have that done. And it's not just, you know, let's make you feel better and relax. There's a lot more behind that that people don't realize. And it's also something that helps people's health in a certain way and also helps with what you do to help people out. So we're going to be covering that next week. Excellent. Yes. All right. Thanks again, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. Bye.